Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and who are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. This episode is with Cathy Evans, and it is absolutely fascinating. Cathy is the Chief Executive of Children England, which is the membership organisation for charities delivering children's services. They are also a very effective campaigning organisation. The conversation is in two parts. The first is almost a how-to guide in executing a campaign to encourage government to change direction on a particular policy. The policy in question was a decision to allow the private provision of child protection services and Cathy goes into great detail on how that campaign was constructed and how it was executed and it is really interesting. The second part of the conversation is about children as you would expect and we talk about the impact of COVID on children and young people and how the pandemic has really exacerbated a lot of the challenges and problems that were already in place. We also talk about the engagement Children England has carried out with children and young people and there's some very valuable insights into how the younger generation view public services and what's important to them. So I think overall this is going to be a really interesting conversation for those people thinking about designing and implementing public policy. So let's hear from Cathy. Cathy, you're really welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. It's a real pleasure to get the opportunity to speak with you. It would be great if you could start by just saying a little bit about who you are. <laughs> I am a, I'm a 50-year-old Welsh woman of white <laughs> origins. <laughs> um, uh, grew up in Wales, and that's where I'm recording from at the moment, looking after my dad. The first thing I did after I left university was do a full-time CSV, as it was called then, a volunteer placement at a children's home because I thought I wanted to become a counsellor mm. and I was told that uh, you needed experience before kind of understanding how counselling applied. So it was a, it was a, what I thought was the first step to a counselling career, but it actually turned into the first step of a children's sector career in one, yeah. one way, shape or form. I did do I did do a bit of counselling training once I was working with young people in secure accommodation. So that was the 
that was the one bit of my career that was spent working for a local authority. Yeah. Um, and the rest of it has always been spent working in, in and with and, and about charities. Yeah. So I, I, I went into policy work after, after years of working in secure care, uh, in the drug sector. I, I was part of producing the first policy guidance for drug treatment for young people at Drugscope. Um, and my, I, I was there for five years and I went to the Children's Society, which was my, my big sort of children's policy campaigning yeah. uh, home, basically. And I was there for nearly 10 years and I was policy director for most of that. And so from there, you know, to be honest, I thought I, I should probably get out of the children's sector and do something else. Um, and failed miserably at that. <laughs> so ended up coming to Children England, which is the membership body for children's charities. So I went for the, the Uber job. <laughs> and I just mean, uh, Uber in sense of above, because we are the sort of the, the collective umbrella for children's charities. But I think we think, I think more of our membership as a family. Yeah. So it's not so. So Children England is not a direct delivery organisation, but I certainly know it's influential and a really important part of the system. So, so what exactly does Children England do? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so I, I need to give some history because it, yeah. because what we do and how we do it has changed over time. Really, um, you know, we are we are part of what I what is widely called the voluntary sector infrastructure world, and there are a lot of voluntary infrastructure bodies. Many of us have p- comparable histories. Uh, in t- uh, we were set up in 1942 mm-hmm. by, by the wartime coalition government, giving a grant to the collective of children's charitable children's home providers at the time. And there'd been a lot of collaboration going on and and to come about the, uh, the, the evacuations programme to protect children from the Blitz and uh, from bombings. Um, and uh, and there was a there was already a clear commitment to a major societal rebuild after the peace, if and when that came. So we were <clears throat> we were started with a government grant to be part of charities working with government uh, to create the set, the society that that was being promised to the British people. In the, in, the, in our case, to children in or needing care. So that that was our roots. That that continued to be the the specific frame for a couple of decades in terms of children's homes, but it broadened out uh, to any charities working with children. Yeah. And kind of, it, it, but it, it we we had been to to kind of zoom forward. Um, we had been funded with government grant to to be around for seventy two years until basically the day I took over. Mm-hmm. And, the, and on that day, we stopped receiving government money. You know, I didn't. I'm not suggesting it was personal, but um, when, when was that? When did you take over? I, I took over as, as chief exec in, in tw- April 2013. Okay. And um, basically, so we lost two thirds of our turnover the, the day before. <laughs> um, well, why was that? Why Why was that decision taken by the government at the time? Well, it was a bit of a combination of things. We were. We'd been very, very aware that since the, t- the coalition government was not enamoured of investing in voluntary sector infrastructure, uh, you know, in in what had previously been a set of strategic, what were called strategic partnerships, you know, bet- with, with, between Whitehall departments and national infrastructure bodies, 
to kind of reach the sector. And I think that's been a really important function. Um, but many of many of my colleagues in the infrastructure sector have had to kind of rethink whether or not that's what we are anymore. We certainly had to because um, basically a, a combination of the different strategic grants that we had. Our, our core one was always with DFE and that had been reshaping, becoming more contract like, yeah. having, having less to do with policy, more to do with training. And then so simultaneously, the, inf- the, the, the strategic interest in voluntary sector infrastructure was was rapidly dwindling and uh, the government investment levels in training, which was another branch of what we were doing a lot of was also dwindling. There was a kind of a signalled move away from expecting central government to fund such things. So say I was running a children's charity and I was part of your your ecosystem. What sort of things would you be doing for me? Well, so there was, there are some things that we still do. So I should explain with, to to your listeners that we are we are tiny. Sometimes, sometimes being national comes with the assumption that that you that makes you big. Yeah. And um, we're not big. We're tiny. Uh, so our our turnover is quite significantly under half a million, and we are six people. Right. So so I think we we demonstrate that you can do quite a lot with a with a with a good small team and uh, uh, and without government money. But some of the things that our well, members always valued do continue and it it might sound simple but we do we do a um a filter a filtered email news roundup for our members every wednesday come up come rain or shine yeah um, and every time we ask them what they value about membership you know there's there are other things that we do but that one just comes out as you know that's what that's we know it's coming that's you've done the filter it seems to include everything we need to know it's, it's so, like a news digest so they don't yeah. have to all through everything yeah yeah and similarly we do kind of on a quarterly basis we do that for funding opportunities for charitable funders who will fund yeah work that our membership does so so there are some bespoke things that we do in terms of policy um informing and kind of being still being that knowledgeable body who are yeah. like if we don't know the answer of somebody, we're likely to know who does. Yes. You know, our members vary from the biggest children's charities with the most recognised names yeah. to a lot of small ones and with very diverse specialisms now. So it's not the case that everyone is involved in the care system. Some are involved in justice or health. Some of them are doing community arts. So so what they need and what uh, from us it can be very varied as well. So we actually operate it on a much more flexible basis if you tell us what you need <laughs> then yeah. then we can see what we can do so so we can host member forums on any topic and that we try to be led by members as to what they uh, what they most want to know and we can we can you know find the leading people you know in the research on that subject or or, or with um, policy specialism on that subject and try and yeah. so to try and keep networked conversations going yes Yes. Um, but sometimes sometimes the most useful thing we do is just make ourselves available for a talk with them about what's going on and what they're struggling with. And that that's, you know, and and if we can if we can partner them with other people who've who've experienced the same thing or got solutions to that, then that's great. But also that gives us 
you know, for a tiny team, that gives us extraordinary intelligence about what's going on yes. right in the country and quite often quite, quite, you know, polar extremes cheek by jowl, uh, you know, from one authority to the next uh, in how they're doing things or what the, what the pressing issues are. So, so what we did when we stopped being the official conduit between Whitehall and the sector was to kind of reorientate ourselves to being the big picture analysts for what's going on in our sector, yeah. what the big concerns are, and for being an independent voice about that, Yes. who is not anymore dependent on government money, so freer to say the things that, that are meant yeah, so that release from the government funding is freeing in some ways, isn't it? Because I, I, I know that you, as well as reaching out to organisations to be there for them, to provide them with the information that they need, that they might not have the expertise or the time in-house to just keep an eye on everything, policy changes, you know, government statements, that type of thing. I know that you also look towards government as well and are able to have conversations there. Can you say a little bit about that side of the... Yeah, well, so, so uh, you know, I mean, having worked, so I've, I've worked in the sector in policy roles. I know that there are a multitude of different ways you can have influence and, and voice. And so, so you know, uh, what we did when we realised that we couldn't be the paid conduit, you know, the official conduit to take messages to government, was to say, well, there, there might be other ways of doing it, you know, in terms of campaigning and in terms of policy development that is derived from our sector and then taken to government or pushed towards government. So basically uh, independent policy work. So, you know, we, the, it, the way we'll do it varies. And I'm certainly not sitting here saying it's always successful. Don't trust any policy person who says their work is always successful. Definitely not a campaigner, because you have to you have to make mistakes to learn how to do it do it in future. And I should say, my trustees took some very bold decisions at the time to say, let's not worry about how we get the money back in. Let's not worry about growing back into being uh, the 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 same organisation that we were before. Let's try and become something different. And so that meant saying, well, you know, there are there are things that we because we know our members, because we know what it's like to be involved in delivering services day to day. Um, we know there's stuff that they can't say that we. Yeah. yeah. First, because firstly, we're we're independently funded. And secondly, we're not dependent on the same sources and relationships that they are to keep their services going. And yeah. Brutal. At the, at, you know, what's the worst that can happen? A small policy body shuts down. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so I, and, and that's not to be blase. I, I care desperately about keeping the organisation going. But uh, I knew that if we made chasing the money the priority, then we wouldn't be able to explore this role of being uh, an outspoken, independent voice who says the things that our members can't say. So the first the first venture of that that the members that the members my all of my trustees are elected from the membership um the first venture of that was they asked me to see if we could take on the competitive marketplace right you know tendering uh you know a pbr all sorts of things that were that that were really really huge in the ecosystem for our members and also creating a lot of tension between our members because they were they were effectively comp competing against each other for work 
uh, yeah. the forced service provision, that all of the nasty dynamics that come out in that kind of environment between large charities that can do uh, invest in their tendering capacity, but perhaps risk being less locally connected versus yes. small charities who don't have the capacity to, you know, for whom it's a real threat, if you like, to take on the liabilities and the competitive risk yeah. of going into tendering and, and and but who are really rooted in their community. Um, so so all of that was a hotbed of the issues that we were, were dealing with with our members. Yeah. Um, but the one thing we could agree on was this isn't working for any of us, actually. So how yeah. do you take how do you take even on the larger even the larger organizations? Absolutely. Were... More to, and more to the point, it's not helping children. You know, yeah. we tend to see this stuff or, or, or discussed as if it's about getting the best services for children. Um, but I think we so my my trustees basically set me the kind of the gauntlet challenge of seeing if you can take on the market. So what's um, a better way of doing it? Well, collaboration is to, to be very, very short about it is better than, than competition. But because this is, you know, and I don't mean that across all of society and everything that happens. I mean that about public services for children. Yeah. Firstly, because even if it's unwitting or unintended, it commodifies children. Mm-hmm. So it, it creates a marketplace that, that is rewarded with money for getting hold of children to work with and then claiming to have done well or badly but having data and then going back out into the into the competition and saying look at our data and that's the children so so firstly philosophically it needed to be challenged about who 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 and where is the child in this world yeah. of talking talking about it as a competitive market you know, I mean, and, and I should be clear, we were, as particularly when we were funded to do it, we were going out with all sorts of resources and equipment and training to to teach our members how to compete in that market. We weren't yes. we weren't sitting back from it and saying, "Oh, isn't it ugly?" <laughs> you know, we were producing. We used to we produced a, a really loved uh, a resource for small charities to prepare them for contracting called Love Your Tender. <laughs> Love your tender. Yeah. What a yeah. That that's a yeah. That's a bit of an oxymoron, that isn't well, it? <laughs> you know, I mean, we we kind of had to do it slightly tongue tongue in cheek because I mean, not the content was absolutely bang on, and the training was focused on saying, you know, this is this might be how you get, you know, more sustainable funding for what you do. So we we must equip you for it. Yes. So taking that example of challenging the market and the assumption that the market is the best way of getting efficient services who did you talk to how did you go about attacking that that principle for want of a better phrase mm-hmm. well um i was i was literally after after the trustees gave this amazing mandate and said I, we don't mind if you spend out our resources trying basically which is you know for any new chief exec that's that's quite a kind of permission to fail if you like Yes. Uh, and I, I was literally just kind of working my head around to, uh, you know, so how, how do we actually go about doing this now? Uh, we'd, we'd produced before that, before this change of strategic direction and so on, we'd actually produced a report that was, that was sourced for all from our members. So it was called Perfect Storms and we published it in 2012. And we'd, we'd use the intelligence that we can get from our membership about 
how is how is these first few years of austerity affecting you? Mm. Because we would see a lot of stats around, sort of like X amount of cuts, uh, you know, that were about the spending budget. Or we would see a lot of stats about around that were about kind of rising demand for services. But none of it added together. None of it painted a picture. It And if, you know, I think everyone goes a bit number blind, particularly when there's just lots and lots of numbers of millions and billions. <laughs> um, it, this doesn't sound like the reality that you're working with. Um, so we got a lot of traction from that report. It's a pretty bleak. It was then a pretty bleak report. But what we did was to do some modelling of how austerity was impacting. Uh, firstly, on on charities, whether or not you were contracted, there were huge things going on in relation to fundraising. There were huge things going on in relation to just, uh, you know, the costs of fundraising were becoming more, more competitive. Um, there was a big push on social finance, but mm-hmm. lots of organisations saying this doesn't work for us. There are lots of pressures on on trusteeship and volunteering. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, people people having to work three jobs a, jobs to raise uh, an inadequate income have very little spare time to, to yes. give, you know. And there were some bonkers interactions with the work programme where people who were volunteering were told that they couldn't anymore uh, because they had to do whatever the work plan was telling them, work programme was telling them to do. So... We wanted to portray what was happening to charities because you don't hear that very much in that analysis. So the first step was was gathering the evidence and telling the story about why this current system yeah. wasn't working well for children. The second right. part was just as important, I think, particularly to this podcast for your listeners, because we, we as soon as we started doing that and trying to paint the picture of what was happening to charities, we had to tell the story of what was happening to councils. Mm-hmm. Because of the symbiosis, because because many of the many of the changes that that charities were having to try to deal with, whether it was to their funding, uh, you know, or to their 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 sustainable operations or the service reconfiguring that was happening, um, all of those were interactive with what was happening to councils by 2012. Yes. Um, and how they were manifesting and handling their cuts. And what we very rapidly found, we've got, we've got a, we've got a, a modelling diagram that was about what we called locality storms. We call it the spaghetti meatballs diagram because it's kind of, it looks like a mess until you get into the detail of it. But it, the same things were happening. Training budgets were being cut as the first thing to go before losing staff. Um, and closures or restrictions or waiting lists were being responded to by less and less you know later and later referral passing yeah. on risk from one organization to another from one closing organization to the one that had to pick up the pieces so we had to portray the ecosystem of how austerity was hitting our sector and one of the strongest things uh, i'm sorry Kathy, just as a reminder this was in 20, this 2012 2012 yeah. so four four years after the the financial crash just That's as right. austerity is really biting yeah That's right. And also, you know, councils, it's, it can be easy to forget. A lot of councils have taken a huge hit on their reserves and their investments in the crash. You know, that wasn't, you know, that, that wasn't, a, that wasn't counted for in then taking a huge hit on the revenue support grant, sure. um, which continues, which continued thereafter. So the fact that we did what I think and um, was then told was a really authentic job of portraying that picture 
and we didn't we didn't tritely pretend to have policy solutions at the time. Yeah. We said what we need to do is get into dialogue with anyone who connects with this because it's far too complex to give you a list of policy reforms that will solve it. That's yeah. beyond our capacity. And so it would be dishonest. So we then went into huge dialogue mode. And part of that dialogue uh, led us to work with the TUC because yeah. they said, look, this 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 frenzy of of tupying of organisational contracts from public sector to charities and from one charity to the next that is part of this competitive world. Um, we're you know we're just seeing a lot of employment carnage in the midst of it. So we ended up with with them and Unison and Unite and a whole load of our members. It took a year and a half to co-produce um, what we call the Declaration of Interdependence. And that was about the ways in which we don't need legal change, but we do need culture change away from competition towards collaboration. Can I just check? That's the Declaration of Interdependence. That's right. So, yeah, that's really clever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just before we were, you know, we were getting towards the point where we wanted to launch it. We did eventually. And we launched it in the Financial Times, interestingly, because they had been they had been uh, equally kind of concerned about the outsourcing frenzy on economic grounds. But but shortly before we, we were ready to do that, uh, Michael Gove suddenly kind of, I say suddenly, slipped out the the intention to address a regulation glitch that meant that child protection services uh, in councils couldn't be outsourced and kind of portrayed it as a, as a mere technicality. We'll just do a three-week consultation on this. And it was during the European elections. So everyone in local local authorities was in PERDA, mm-hmm. European and, and council elections, I should say. So it felt like a, a, a sort of a, a cataclysmic to the children's sector proposition yeah. being, being swept under as a, as a minor regulation change in a period when no one was going to pay attention. And so uh, I find myself as a as a someone who'd worked in children's services for for all of my life, just thinking, I can't I can't be a chief executive of a children's organization and let this go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and, and it was it was absolutely personal, that, yeah. to, to be really frank, because I had no sense of being able to stop it. You know, this was literally trying taking the last bit of public ser- public service that couldn't be outsourced in children's services and kind of tidying everything up by making sure that it could. And so the argument hadn't been had properly in our in our sector about about the principle of what can, what should or shouldn't be outsourced. But we had social workers contacting us and saying, my council can't say anything. My 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 professional body can't say anything, but I think this will be the end of everything if G4S can come in and take over child protection social work and put the, put children they remove from home into G4S children's homes, then we we will have watched the wholesale commodification of children. So you're, um, the organisations that you represent, uh, most of them are independent. They, they were of a very strong view that child protection should stay within the public sector. And actually the things, yeah. they, they weren't anxious to start delivering that well, service. Well, that's an interesting distinction. So, so I would say there were some charities in, certainly in our membership who were, they remembered the fact they, you know, it lives in our sector's history and muscle memory that we invented child protection social work as charities. Mm. 
we we were doing it before the state. So I I think there was there were definitely some charities who uh, and and other organisations too who were saying it has to remain public public only. But there were some other charities who were saying, look, I feel really uncomfortable about the idea of the private sector doing it, but I definitely think charities could do it. There yeah. were some charities who could do it and do it well. So we had no, we didn't have unanimity on that, but there was pretty pretty unanimous anxiety at the prospect of Circo or G4S doing it. Yeah. And uh, and Children's England had no footprint, no history of kind of doing something quite so outstanding in, as a leadership role as taking on the privatisation of child protection. Yeah. So I, I actually went to our trustees and I said, look, I, I don't expect even to get much notice, let alone to win. But I, I, I think we should put a marker in the sand for the for, for historical record that we tried to stop it. Yes. And it was a very it was a very uh, interesting dialogue in the trustee group because, you know, there wasn't anyone who disagreed that this would be, you know, like this was crossing a Rubicon. Yeah. Um, potentially. And that and that everyone felt uh, deep down, you just can't have private companies taking children's yeah. children away. And so what but, did you do? So you had the, the motivation to take action here. So what? They gave me license to do it. They and they didn't necessarily they hadn't got their heads around it, but they said, Look, let's you you try, see what happens. Um basically we 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 didn't do very much, but we worked on a very short statement for a petition of like, why is this a problem? Yeah. You know, because because cutting through was really difficult. Some people thought it was a problem because of well, you know, prof it's worth service. Some people thought it was in principle about about privatisation. Um, we framed it very clearly as about how uh, it, this was a human rights issue for children and and an incredibly draconian state power that shouldn't be handed to anyone who could be perceived as doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And that, that that was the problem with the proposition. And we weren't opposed to reform or change of child protection we weren't saying everything's fine as it is but that would ruin the the, the public trust if if people experienced private companies doing the social work that led to their child's removal there would be no public trust in the system at all yeah um from children from families etc that are but equally in court so we we created a short punchy statement and kind of tried to make sure we got that right Put it out as a petition, having having alerted, uh, you know, various journalists we knew. But eventually it turned out that having briefed colleagues at The Guardian, they ended up going for a front page splash, which we didn't know. We we, we didn't know we were going to be able to get that much public profile for it. But so we timed our position, our our petition to go out on the day of the front day, front page splash. um, And. It just flew. You know, we had this experience of just watching. We spent every day watching a petition go up, which is, yeah. which is, you know, a bit goldfish bowly. But we were just so it kept going. It kept going, and that that Saturday head, headline meant it got to a public audience who would never have known about a regulatory change. Yeah. And once it had got to a public audience, the argument can't be sustained. I mean, I think we just. We were right to think this is a Rubicon. 
because yeah. lots of people just went, I don't even know anything about child protection, but I but know. That sounds wrong. That, that, that sounds smells, wrong. That smells so, wrong, yeah. So it, it, it led to a, a, you know, a couple of weeks of frenzy of activity. It ended up being 77,000 representations, including letters right. written into Michael Gove. And it was, uh, and, and we had the answer ready. So I, I, you know, I said, you know, you've got precedent here. You've banned profit in adoption, um, before. And, and there's a good reason for it. And you can align it with that. So you can ban profit without, uh, banning or outsourcing. That you can say the only organizations who could possibly do this other than the state cannot, cannot so, be making a profit. Yes. So, so rather than just creating a row with government, you actually, were providing them with a rather elegant out if they wanted to take it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, I guess and so. What happened? And what happened? Um, well, ha- having set about all of this for, for my, my, you know, my sort of mental, mental health and satisfaction on my deathbed, because I assumed that we would fail, I got, a, I got a call on a Friday lunchtime just after the consultation had closed from the DFE to say, you'll, you'll like this, you've won. <laughs> now, you know, it, it's not often in, in, in I, I've been involved in campaigns that were successful in one way or another, but not in a fortnight and not, uh, you know, not not when I thought we would fail. So that was quite an experience. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it happened. You know, obviously, we couldn't have created that experience, but it happened and it established for everyone who knows us what this new version of Children England could do. Yes. By saying by taking it, taking out front uh you know we'll say the thing that nobody else is going to go out and do and then if you if you agree you can follow us and if you don't you can just say thank goodness somebody said it it's, it's, so it's, we had a real a real example of what our strategic proposition was yes that then lay the territory for the declaration of interdependence about saying look if you care if you're worried about the wider picture of all this outsourcing we have answers to that too i think that's extremely powerful and also what that showed government any government that there is an organization out there keeping an eye on things and they are capable of acting and creating a stir around things so i think that is a fascinating story thank you so much for sharing that with us i want to fast forward to the present day yeah because we we have to talk about the pandemic and the impact of that. So as we start to, I mean, I hesitate to say emerge from the pandemic because I think we're heading for a very difficult winter. But what challenges lie ahead for children and the organisations who support children and their families? And, you know, have these been exacerbated by the past 20, 21 months? Yeah, it's it, it's monumental, isn't it? I mean, I, I there, there are a huge range of issues that are that are damaging and disadvantaging children that we've been worried about for a long time definitely exacerbated by the pandemic but more worryingly seemingly completely ignored in recovery yes what are the specific challenges that the pandemic has exacerbated if you like well the the the, the sort of the headline is that it's it's worsened all of our inequalities (coughs) yeah (coughs) And and the lived experience of those inequalities. So uh, it, it was challenging to everyone's me- mental health and family well-being it, uh, to to take everything that children need and put it all in the domestic home 
and uh, you know to take uh, to get parents to do the teaching to you know to to keep running social work or social work relationships or counseling mental health relationships that was already challenging um but if you or if you were in temporary housing if you were in in a dangerous relationship if you were in poverty already um if you uh didn't have digital capacity if you don't have broadband all of the things that are unequally distributed that made bearing lockdown possible without them lockdown was unbearable you know and damaging i you know there were terrible examples uh, awful heart-wrenching examples shared of, of the impact on children's development uh magpie project gave evidence to parliament uh, about the impact of of uh COVID, of COVID and lockdown on vulnerable children that included talking about babies and toddlers being confined to rooms the size of a parking bay yeah. in temporary accommodation that, that used to be an office block that's not really fit for human habitation, but whose walking, whose development of walking and limb development and bone development was affected by only being able to stand up on a bed. Yeah. You know, so... so I, I I don't think we're close to quantifying and, and comprehending the totality of the impact of lockdown, but particularly on those who are already struggling and disadvantaged by our systems in the first place. I think, you know, I, I think that there was an opportunity in that insight, because what happened was that the nation experienced that the whole economy and the whole of society really pivots on whether or not our children are okay that people experience that in your family home if your child was fine the the harmony reigned if they weren't nobody's happy happy yeah Um, yeah. but 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 families experienced real time what teachers offer them every day before you know before and after um people realized that being unable to get the kids to the to see their grandparents was a big impact emotionally physically but on on the family routines but uh, employers realized that i can't just tell my people tell my staff to come back to work if their childcare isn't there if their child has got covid etc so there was an opportunity i still think there is if we if we realize it to comprehend that 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 experience if nothing else it should have taught us that children are the heart of society and economy so so recovery needs to look after children well for for everyone's benefit including the economy i think that's fascinating and and i know that when the government are thinking about leveling up they are now very much thinking about social capital and and public services as well it's not just about bridges roads new new train stations economic output it's about health and well-being as well and i think it's going to be really interesting to see um how this this develops when this podcast goes out the leveling up white paper will probably be out it's not out yet when we're talking so we can't talk about any detail on that what we do know is that the NHS, rather than focusing on levelling up specific areas, is very focused on health inequalities. And some of the leaders I've spoken to on the podcast, like Rob Webster um, or Mel Pickup, both of whom are in the West Yorkshire and Harrogate integrated care system, they talk about health inequalities. What 
should the NHS be focusing on with regards to health inequalities when thinking about children? Well, I, th- I think there's a lot of there's a lot of agreement across the children's sector, but also any of the work that that that, that is done to listen to children and what they're saying really should be prioritised. There's a pretty strong consensus around mental health and the fact that the NHS's provision for child mental health is both kind of completely oversubscribed and therefore waiting lists for things that are needed today because they're urgent of like year, 18 months. That once you're waiting for urgent help with your anxiety, your, you know, your, your crisis in mental health today, once you're waiting for 18 months to get it, then you're basically on your own. And um, among other things we were doing, we've been listening to young people through the pandemic online yes. and beyond um, about what they, how they think you can make a, ch- a child fair state, this child at the centre being better for everyone. And so how, how have you been listening to them? Sorry, what sort of? Well, we, we started the initiative before the pandemic. It was called uh, the Child Fair State Inquiry. So we'd already recruited a core group of young people. Okay with all sorts of different experience and perspectives across experiencing homelessness, uh, depending on the on the NHS because of health conditions, uh, young people with disability, with care experience, etc. Huge range of knowledge that they already had of how public services do and don't work that they brought into kind of re- revisiting beverage and the idea of designing a whole system, not different services and bits of services but a whole system for public collective support and effort across housing benefits councils the nhs and schools they were they had reached the stage of designing their research program with and for other young people uh, then lockdown hit and we were ready to say to them look you have all sorts of priorities and challenges to meet we don't have to pu- we don't have to push you on on continuing with this program um, and, they, and, and basically they all said, I think we should do it quicker. <laughs> we should, we should, you know, so they adapted all of their research to do it online, um, which they did. And we held summits about the findings and how to come up with better vision all online. Um, but they but they acutely felt that this pandemic makes it more important that we have this stuff ready when we come out the other side um, oh, about how to make things better. What were some of the things that they were saying and what were some of the key well, takeaways from the engagement? So, so uh, I mean, I think one of the things that was interesting was that, I mean, that both in their research and in their attitudes, they definitely weren't writing everything off and saying, you know, scrap it all and build build back up from the bottom. There was a lot of recognition of what's great about the public services that they do receive or the, the professionals that they encounter. And they were saying, but, you know, the principle is right. We're grateful that the services are there. We're grateful that there is a commitment to school. They, we, 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 we see the value of there being an NHS, but it's, it's about how you do it as much as what you do. So there were lots and lots of different messages. I mean, there, there are some big sort of, you know, what if we had a universal basic income for families and took fa- took poverty off the agenda? What mm. if there was tax reform to kind of mitigate the, the 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 top and the bottom inequality, but also to really invest in, in back in communities? But there were some consistent themes 
rather than just policy solutions, because they definitely rooted the, the bulk of the change that needs to happen at community level and council level. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, 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 and, and, so there was a striking finding that uh, young people were saying, we love the NHS, but we don't ask for help from it because we don't want to be a burden. We know it's under such stress. But that not asking for help from it is is a huge problem. But yeah. for the equity of ch- you know children getting from the NHS what they're entitled to, mm-hmm. and actually many of them don't think that they are. They want to respect and protect the NHS by not asking for help. And that's a that's a big problem to every every interest in tackling health inequalities. But also for them to feel like uh, it's a service that is there for them, it would need to be delivered in ways that aren't kind of focused on adults. You know, so so you've got. You've got a system which kind of expects you to understand which bit of it to speak to about what, what you what might be ailing you, uh, and and we shouldn't be expecting children to do that. But that but that then talks about the referral criteria. You don't meet the referral criteria for mental health because you're I mean, you're just anxious. You're not suicidal. That yeah. sort of thing is just kind of it, it it doesn't correspond to saying we want positive, beneficial, preventative support for young people to be healthy rather than to be processed having problems having clinical problems so uh, a lot of what they've got principles and they've got values and approaches that they would like to see brought to public service reform i think that's incredibly interesting particularly the focus on things being delivered and decisions about what is provided and delivered being at more of a local and community level that fits in with the trend of thinking at the minute that decisions are better made closer to the communities especially with regard to public services those decisions should be made as close to the communities that want to benefit from them as possible and it's really interesting that children and young people who you're talking to are coming to that conclusion themselves and probably in a very instinctive and just lived experience way as well. But they also have very strong sense about the injustice of the inequalities underlying that. So they said, look, there's no justice in saying uh, that because because you were born in a community that's already poor, your services will be poor. Your you won't you know that the, the, they they instinctively came to the collectivist redistributive idea. That, you know, people, people should pay in, people yeah. should pay in what they can while they can and get from it what they need when they can't. And that that works at both an individual level, but also a geographical level. So yeah. in, 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 in theory, but not in name, they were, they were agreeing about leveling up. They were basically saying it's just not, it's just not okay to say because your council is, is impoverished. Um, that's your experience. That, that's that child's experience compared with another area. So there is a challenge at the minute around how far levelling up and the distribution of funding can go. So it's very easy to ask areas to bid for funding for infrastructure and even social capital infrastructure. But when you start considering how the NHS and social care even can contribute to levelling up, you're naturally drawn to the question of whether 
poorer areas, more deprived areas that need more support, should they get more funding for the NHS? You know, should should there actually be an unequal distribution of, let's say, NHS resources across the country based on need and on deprivation? Because that that would be a big change from the way the NHS currently operates and the constitution in commas under which it operates. Yeah. I I have to I have to make clear that I don't even pretend to any expertise about the NHS and how it works it, like structurally. It's it's the principle. It sounds like some of your young people are saying actually uh, we don't think it's okay yeah. for some areas to to fall behind in terms of health Absolutely. in terms of quality of life well-being. Well, I I definitely think they were certainly saying to us like you know the the poorest areas need the most investment. On, a, on that redistributive principle. I mean, but also, and this isn't particularly, I, I wouldn't want to give this uh, as, as kind of what the young leader said, but what I would say from looking at what our members' experience over the, over time have been is that nobody wants to challenge that the British people love the NHS. It is a distinct thing yeah. uh, that, that, ha- that is a national hierarchy. And, I mean, even right now we're seeing different... The, the, the health and social care bill is creating different procurement rules for the NHS from the whole of the rest of the public sector, which are going to be de- dealt with differently. Now, you know, um, I get it, but it's it's really problematic for the rest of the public service. Yeah. For, for the NHS to be simplistically viewed as the expression of pu- public collective yeah. You know, collective. We 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 love it, and it's for all of us, and we get it free when we need it. That's a that's a, such an important principle, but it's it's increasingly not viewed as a principle that should apply to housing or benefits or or, really social, or social care. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, in uh, what I know from a lot of our members, who whose primary framing place where they collaborate is local. Because if you provide services locally for children, you have to collaborate for safeguarding. Mm-hmm. So with or without the funding, you're, you're part of a children's ecosystem at the local level. And sometimes the hardest part to get into a kind of a collaborative, a genuinely collaborative partnership locally is uh, is health. Mm-hmm. Because the structure doesn't really allow it. It's not because the practitioners don't real, don't want to do that. But the, so so. I'm not. I'm definitely not arguing for NHS re- structural reform again. I think <laughs> you know, I can't alienate yeah. everyone. But uh, we do. We do. Uh, you know, from a system design point of view, there's a mismatch. You know, yeah. there is a, there is a mismatch uh, when it comes to thinking about what what we really want in the in the basket in the autonomous basket um, on place based ways of working better. I I completely agree, and I think this is. This is going to become um, an ever more apparent challenge as we think about public service reform and devolution and creating places which are more in control of their own resources. So I think I, I really welcome, welcomed your thoughts there. So I've got one final question and I ask everybody this. So what, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in public services or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make the sort of impact that you've been able to make? Um, well, um, can I give two? Yes, of course. 
Just because I, I, I think that um, one of the reasons I'm part of the Human Learning Systems Collaborative is because there are lots of things that can be changed without waiting for someone in power to change it. And that is about viewing what everything that we do as a, a relationship. Everything that you're doing professionally is a relationship, not just with the people you serve, but with uh, other parts of the system. Just keep trying to find and talk differently and construct the relationship differently with the perhaps with the you know the the organization or the team that you've always thought is the problem and you know see what might happen if you if you say okay i think i think our system would work better if you were weren't doing xyz but instead of making that a passover make that the beginning of a conversation about you know what what would it take to help you do your job better yeah so there are places like plymouth show that there are incredible changes incredible you know, but real differences in how how to do things that can come from starting a different conversation. So Plymouth, just to give that example really quickly. Yes, Plymouth. Uh, you know, they 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 spent years going through uh, with their contracted tendered suppliers for um, complex mental health, uh, for complex needs, multiple needs um, across things like domestic abuse, substance yeah. misuse, etc. They spent years in a co-productive process where they suspended competition and said, all of us are going to collaborate to make this the best of service for the people who need it. One service, even if we remain 26 organisations, we're going to end up with a common service experience that is better. And so, we, need, we need to take responsibility for that. So what they've ended up with what's called an alliance contract where everyone involved does get their money. Open book accounting, if you if it costs it, you do what you do and we'll pay you for what you've done. But um, but the, the responsibility is collective. So they are responsible to each other for making sure that the the, the service promise gets gets delivered. And uh, instead of 26 competing organisations saying I'm, I'm doing fine, it's them who aren't doing their job. Yeah. And, and, you know, it takes a long time to break down that instinct and that reality in many cases. But you can reconstruct it if you start from a different place. How could I help you do your job better on the assumption that you're doing you're doing something that is beneficial? So 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 that's one bit you can you can ch- change the conversation, change the relationship and, and bigger change may come. But the other one that I took from that profit campaign experience is that sometimes you need to do the thing that you think is going to fail anyway, because if it's the right thing, you might find that it won't. Yeah, no, I I think that's incredibly powerful. And even if it fails, the next time it might not fail because you may have laid the ground for the the person coming next. But and also, even if it fails in its in its main objective, you you never know how much people will appreciate and then you know accept your leadership. Yeah. Or doing it anyway, you know that that I, I did it because I knew that the sector needed to have an opportunity to say it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly it's incredibly important in our system. Scrutiny, challenge, it's incredibly important. We are not a society that just goes along with things, and I certainly know for a fact that government civil servants want to do the right thing. They they want to do the right thing, and they can only do that with all of the information and all of the views. So uh, completely appreciate that. 
Kathy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. You too, Andrew. Thanks for asking me. Gosh, there is so much to talk about after this episode. I really enjoyed that conversation with Kathy. The first thing I want to focus on is this idea of the importance of scale and independence. So Kathy explained how Children England had been almost officially commissioned by government to be that link between government and the children's charity sector. And the release from that posed a financial challenge for the organisation, but it also released them to speak truth to power, really. And I think Cathy's explanation of how Children England are able to be that voice was really powerful. The part of the discussion where Cathy talks about how as organisations get bigger, chasing the money becomes more important and becomes more of a driving force. And this is particularly true for charities when they get to a certain size. I thought that was very insightful and there are definitely lessons there to be aware of for a whole range of providers in the third sector. I think for anybody thinking about running a campaign on a particular issue, this conversation will tell you a huge amount. Everything from the importance of gathering stories, gathering evidence, gathering data, through to planning a campaign and building partnerships and the importance of engaging in dialogue, trying to build those important collaborations which can really drive a campaign, all the way through to providing a a soft landing for the person or the organisation who the campaign is aimed at is really important when you're thinking about actually delivering a successful outcome. And Cathy explained that incredibly well. I think my personal favourite part of the conversation was when we were talking about children and young people and their views on public services. And the bit which really jumped out for me was the appreciation that the children and young people that Cathy and her team engaged with want public services to be delivered as locally as possible and for the priorities of those public services to be driven locally. And finally, I just wanted to emphasise Cathy's warning at the end that whilst the NHS is incredibly important and there's nobody is arguing against that, but the NHS being on a pedestal and quite often being prioritised in terms of government funding puts other parts of the public sector under real pressure and often will squeeze those other parts of the public sector and either directly or indirectly this quite often increases pressure on the NHS because a lot of the other parts of the public sector and public services are the bits that keep people well and keep people at home and I think that was an important point worth bearing in mind for policymakers out there and for those closer to the front line delivering public services as well. So that's everything for this week. I hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to register on the website or follow the podcast on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you never miss a future episode. <laughs>